You are listening to the sermon podcast of Connection Church, a gospel-centered community on a mission to make much of Jesus in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. For more information, visit SiouxFallsConnection.com. Thank you for listening. So we're going to open God's Word together. We're going to read all of chapter 13, and we'll walk through it as is our custom together. As John, the apostle, has been introducing us to Jesus with all of our questions, with all the people that miss out on who Jesus is, beginning a turn in the story in verse 1 of chapter 13. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, You have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, Not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen. But the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted up his heel against me. I am telling you this now before it takes place that When it does take place, you may believe that I am He. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me. And whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in His spirit and testified. Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you're going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because, Jesus, because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, He immediately went out, and it was night. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man 
glorified. And God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you, you will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. If you had all the power in the world to do whatever you want, what would you do with it? If you had all the power all the power you can imagine. I know some of you, you think superpower. You, you go straight to comic book because that's the narrative of your life, right? Some of you think power of the Lord of the Rings. Some of you think power in terms of money, right? Well, whatever you conceptualize as power and might and greatness, if you had all the power in the world, what would you do? What would you do? What would you do with it? What would you buy with it? What would you accomplish with it? You see, that question is posed to Jesus and He shows an amazing thing. With all the power in the world. Did you catch that in verse 3? The most striking sentence in the chapter. Jesus, He knew that He was going to be betrayed and then what? He knew that the Father had given what? All things into His hands. All things. That He had come from God. He didn't belong here. The mess that he was surrounded by wasn't his. He was going to get to go back to the Father where he came from. And what did he do with all of his power? All the power and might and the universe. And what does it say he did? Verse 4, he rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments. He took a towel and tied it around its waist. He took the form of a servant, poured water into a basin, and washed the feet of his disciples. When you ask that question to Jesus, what is it that you will do with all your authority, all your power, all your might, Jesus? He takes the form of a servant. He does the unthinkable. He does the inappropriate. And he washes the feet of his disciples. He demonstrates something that is meant to radically transform us. That the love of Jesus in all its power, and all of its might, bends down towards us. Now up to this point, we've seen in the turn of last chapter towards the cross, the last week of Jesus' life on earth. I have, to, I have to say, I have to make sure I said on earth. My, my daughter, thank God for a catechism class, is growing as a theologian. And we were listening uh, on last Monday morning to my sermon audio, as this is just my painful custom to listen to myself. You should try it sometime. It's a healthy and, 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 a, and a, it's a sanctifying experience. Hurts, though. <laughs> Especially when you're not your worst critic. My daughter says, I said, this is the last week of his life. And she says, doesn't, doesn't Jesus still live forever? Then why do you say it was the last week of his life? And I said, you're right. This is the last week of his life on earth. Now that's just one correction I could make. But this is the last week of his life on earth that will end at the cross. And we see now here at one of the last nights of his life before the Passover, he celebrates this last memorial meal. And what does he do? He takes all of his authority, all of his might, and takes it and pours it out as an expression of great love. And so we see a radical reorientation 
around this path that Jesus has set, that God is glorified. And you'll hear this word glory on and on and on again for the next several chapters. And God is glorified, not in the Scripture, but especially in these chapters. God is glorified in saving people that deserve judgment. Specifically, we see for the next week of Jesus' last life on earth, last week of Jesus' life on earth, that God receives the glory through a special honor amidst opposition. A special kind of honor. You see, Jesus does something here. Now, beginning in chapter 13, we're going to see in the first 30 verses, is the, it's a preamble to what we'll refer to for the next several weeks as the farewell discourse. So chapter 13 through 17, scholars refer to as the farewell discourse. And so for the next several weeks, as we're walking through chapter 13 through chapter 17, it's going to be this kind of in and out of a speech that Jesus gives. Now, that's especially important because this is to call back your attention for some of you who are, who are reading through the Scripture even this year, trying to cover and this year and the next as much of the Scripture as you can. Hang in there, right? I know that, you know, forget your New Year's resolution. This is an eternal resolution. The words you learn from the Scripture, you'll be declaring in song, but around the throne forever and ever. That's just a freebie for you. But this farewell discourse fits the format of what you'll find elsewhere in the Scripture, it's like Moses' farewell, farewell speech in Deuteronomy chapter 31 through 33. It's like the farewell speech of Jacob in Genesis 49. It's like the farewell speech of Joshua in Joshua 23 and 24. The farewell speech of Samuel in 1 Samuel 12. And of course, the biggest and the greatest and the longest farewell speech, David's. In 1, excuse me, 1 Kings 2 and 1 Chronicles 28 and 29. And in those farewell speeches, you see some pretty common themes. First, there's a, a, some sort of a prediction of departure. Now, these are usually speeches given by a father speaking to children. Now, you see Jesus. Did you notice what he called the people he was speaking to? My little children. There's usually a prediction of departure or death. There's usually a prediction of future challenges, of future obstacles on the way for followers or for the son of the man dying after his departure or after death. Thirdly, there's usually arrangements regarding succession or a continuation, if you will, of the family mission. Fourth, you'll see there's exhortations to right, good, or moral, godly behavior. Fifthly, there's a, a final commission. There's an affirmation and a renewal of God's promises. And then lastly, a, a doxology, that literally uh, words of glory. Now what you'll see is Jesus for the next several chapters, fitting that very mold. Hey, this is what's going to happen. Hey, here's some warnings about what is about to take place. And here's some encouragement. I'm going to be with you. I'll be returning to you. And even the, the, the succession, right, you'll see in the next few chapters, he's like, don't worry, when I leave, what's going to happen? I'm going to bring a comforter along. Nothing's going to change. I won't be here, but our purpose, our mission, our family will stay intact. Now you see Jesus hearkening back to this pattern of God keeping His promise even though his, the leaders come and go. And you see one of the instructions. Did you catch that? A virtue. Love one another. However, there's also there's ways in which this farewell is quite different, isn't it? The farewell is temporary. He's like, I'll be back. For a little while I'm going away, but don't worry. You'll see me again soon enough. The second thing we see here is that there aren't very many predictions about the future. Not very many, not, not very specific anyway. And there's this divine picture that comes in in chapter 15 of a vine. Very different than any other farewell address. You see, now Jesus we're meant to see here is the new Moses. He's the new Joshua. He's the representative of a new kingdom like David had. A new covenant a God keeping His promises. Just like He's kept His promise for His people through His biblical predecessors. So the first 30 verses of this farewell discourse from chapter 13 to chapter 17 are like a preamble. Literally, it's a cleansing of this community. It's literal and physical in that he stoops down and washes their feet. The filthiest particular place. Now, these people probably would have gone through their ritual cleansing to prepare for the Passover, but then they would have walked along a road. And a Roman road, as you would maybe, maybe wouldn't be able to relate to, like 
So a road is to take things that have wheels and transport them, right? Just so you know, what's the fuel and, let's say, carbon emissions, if you will, for the modes of transportation that existed at this time? And they're walking along them amidst the manure, mud, dust. And so he literally cleanses these people to prepare them for something through foot washing. But there's also a figurative cleansing. Did you catch that? A figurative cleansing. He says, you're, you're clean, but not all of you. And the figurative cleansing that he addresses that not all of them are clean is what? The, the departure of the betrayer. Now this should call to mind John chapter 2, remember? Where Jesus saved the day in a wedding and then immediately cleansed the temple. He went into and addressed these corrupt Jewish customs that were keeping the nations out of the, the court of the Gentiles to where people could come and worship God. But in some sense, in chapter 2, he didn't fully succeed. They didn't stop. They kept doing things that he criticized them for for the next several chapters. But we see in this cleansing, a truer and better and more successful type of cleansing that only Jesus can offer. And the result? A new, clean community. How did they get that way? Because Jesus served them. So I want you to walk through this with me, beginning in verse now, before the feast of the Passover, so now we've gotten really close. We've skipped a little through the last week of Jesus' life here on earth and all the way to the last few nights as he's celebrating the Passover with his own, it says. He knew it is our had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own. Now, remember last week, we saw a picture of people who had seen the works of Jesus, the signs of Jesus, and yet still not believed. And what does John say? He's like, don't worry, that's, that's not uncommon. In fact, that's a fulfillment of Scripture. And he quoted Isaiah for us. So we would know people not believing, even in spite of great signs, shouldn't scare you. In fact, that's evidence of God fulfilling His prophecies, fulfilling His plan. His purpose is not gone awry. It is right where it ought to be. But the picture we saw last week is of people who are not His own. They were cold, they were hard-hearted literally, and they were blind, unable to see Jesus for who He was. But what do we see here? He came to His own, in stark contrast to the people who were not His own. And then He says something powerful here. He says He, he was about ready to depart out of this world. Having loved His own who were in the world, He loved them to the end. He loved them to the end. And then he took on the posture of a servant. He loved them to the end. Now this is an interesting phrase here. If you have different translations, you'll see it says something really different in every single one. And that's because the phrase here, it says he loved them literally into the telos. Right? The end. But not just the end. He didn't say it's a chronological thing, like not just the end of time. Although he certainly promises us that in Matthew 28. Right? I'm going to be with you until the end. And it doesn't even necessarily mean like he loved to the utmost, like the most a person could possibly love. Although we see that, and even in the next few chapters, we're going to see the greatest possible love that can be de demonstrated is what? By a person who lays down their life for the ones they love. So he certainly loved in that way. But, but that telos is interesting. It's, it's more about purpose. It's more about a vector, a direction, a destination. He loved them to the utmost, to the end to their purpose, to the fulfillment of the plan. Don't miss that. He loved in a powerful way. And this is what we learned from Jesus here. Love, the love of Jesus, and therefore the contagious love that we have from Jesus leads. Love leads. The way we say this is, is simple. Look, Jesus loves you, but he loves you too much to leave you. He loves you right where you are, just as you are. But He loves you too much to leave you there. He loves you enough to take you somewhere better. He, to the utmost, to the purpose, to the goal. Right? This, this, there's a, a perfect sense that we see Jesus from the cross. The last words, right? It is finished. What does He say? A te telestai. That is that, it's the perfect tense of that word, telos. It's finished. It's completed. Financial terms, it's paid in full. That's why we sing of the things that we sing of. 
But love leads. Love takes someone somewhere. Now, this is interesting because you're going to see a lot of radical ways in which that Jesus' love confronts what we typically think love is, how we define it, and certainly how we use the word love. Now, the Bible has multiple words for love to help us have this, but we unfortunately only have one in English. And so we love our wives, but we also love french fries. And we use the same word to describe our relationship to wives and french fries. I may be too personal for you, but whatever that is for you, I love that. Oh, I just love it. I love it, right? This is, and, and Jesus says, no, look, real love isn't that simple. Real love leads. Real love sees a person and then hopes for, desires for, has affections for better things. Not even just better things. Did you catch that? The best things. The utmost of things. Now this is interesting for us. We typically think that if anyone implies that you're in any way incomplete or somehow like lacking or there's a weakness, that is the most unloving possible thing that they could do. Right? But you know that's not true. Real love does that. Certainly it takes proximity. You have to be intimate with someone to get away with it. But the people who love me tell me when I have green things in my teeth, which I frequently do. My spiritual gift is teeth that grabs food. And people who love me in love say, hey, right? Why? Because they don't want me to look like a fool. They love me. But you know what that implies, right? They're close enough to where I can receive it. Look, I share this with you. My wife loves me in an intimate way, in a strange way. Not only my, will my wife now, we're at the stage, and some of, you, some of you can relate to this, we're at the stage now my wife doesn't just point out like when I have something hanging from my nose. She just reaches over and grabs it. Now, if anyone did that to you, it would freak you out, right? How close and intimate would you have to be with a person where that would be received as loving? You get it? Jesus leans in intimately, but he's loving them in a way that's taking them somewhere. He loves them towards the goal. He loves them through and out of the mess that they're currently in. Don't miss that. Sometimes the most loving thing that a person can do is to image Jesus in this by loving you through a mess, not leaving you there. Look, I know sometimes you want people to leave you alone. I know what it means to want space. But sometimes the most loving thing to do is to say, get up, get out. I'm not going to let you stay here. You can't wallow in this. And I know in that moment it feels very unloving. But if you want to be mad at someone when they're doing that, be mad at Jesus. They're just modeling his love for you to the utmost. That's what love is. And that's, in fact, as we see it, that's what leadership is for us, hopefully, in the life of our church. It's just someone who sees something and goes, look, hey, let's, let's get somewhere else. I mean, I've got a, law protruding, a log protruding from my own eye, but, but let's address that. And then notice there's a speck that's keeping you from the goal, the purpose. The second thing you notice is that not only does love lead or lead love in such a way that takes us to the utmost, the goal, the telos, love serves. Look what he does. He loves him to the end, to the purpose, but during supper... He takes the posture of a servant. Now, in, we see this in, in, in certain Jewish texts that a Jew wasn't even allowed to wash another Jew's feet. Even a Jewish servant wasn't allowed to wash another Jewish person's feet because that, that task was too vile. It's too awful. And so it was usually reserved for mostly like more wealthy or more privileged or maybe if these people weren't necessarily wealthy but you know when you have a special occasion you start acting wealthy you dress up and spend a lot of money on food you don't do it all the time but but kind of for the special occasion you do well this is what's probably going on here maybe they're wealthy uh, maybe the home that's hosting them maybe it's wealthy but but for whatever reason there wasn't a servant namely a, a foreign servant not a jewish servant an outsider there wasn't an outsider to take the position of a slave or servant to wash these people's feet and what did jesus do he met their need he stooped to the lowest possible level 
and did what they simply needed done. Now it's a symbol, it's a picture. But we see the love of Jesus, not only that is, it, is it to the utmost, to the goal, to the end, but it also is to the bottom. Here's the way I would combine those two things together. Love leads by serving and serves by leading. Look, my only goal in this, even on a weekly basis, is to stand up here and to serve. To meet a need. Sometimes a need you don't even realize you have. You got something in your teeth and I'm just here to like let the Holy Spirit do its work and maybe, maybe we'll, we'll get it out. But I'm just trying to meet a need. And some of you know what that's like. Some of you are hopeless. Some of you feel aimless. You feel worthless. You feel forgotten. You feel abandoned. And what do you need? You need someone to remind me that you're wrong. <laughs> that you're not without hope. You're not abandoned. You're not forgotten. And you need someone, sometimes loudly and in an animated fashion, to serve you by saying, no, 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 look over here. Remember, the thing you need, hope, joy, and peace, is freely offered to you in Christ. If you would but turn to Him. Turn away from these sources of hopelessness. Look to the abundant joy that we have in Jesus. And so I know someone in my position has probably abused their power and harmed you one time or another. But I hope you'll see our goal, my goal specifically, is to lead by just simply meeting a need. I bet sometime this week you forgot. I bet you forgot how much Jesus loved you. I bet you forgot how valuable you are in, in the sight of the Lord. I bet you forgot what good purpose he set aside for you. To, I, I bet you forgot. And so every week, I, I just want to meet a need. I want to remind you. I want to meet a need. And that means in our church, that's all this is. This picture of servant leadership, it's a Jesus idea. There's no one before Jesus where we read this. Even if you, write, if you read great, great leaders, uh, if you think in, in terms of like Sun Tzu and the art of war and warfare, even when he talks about leading, he never talks about like serving. He never talks about like laying down his life for his soldiers. This is radical here. In the other gospels, we see something that's probably going on. You remember in the other gospels what was happening? What conversation was taking place around the Passover meal? They were having a, a conversation about what? Who's the greatest? Who's the greatest? Who's the greatest? Who, who's going to be the vice president in Jesus' kingdom? Who's going to be the secretary of state? Who's, right? like they're, they're passing out offices. Who deserves to sit where in Jesus' kingdom? And what does Jesus say? He says, look, if you want to be great, don't be like the Gentiles, the outsiders. They lord their power over others. If you want to be great, you take your power and you put it under someone. And he says, what? The greatest among you will be what? Your servant. The greatest will be your slave. It's just the one who meets needs. And Jesus models this. He loves and leads them by simply serving them, meeting a need. And that's what we do as well. Even as you look at, you know, the brown card that talks about gospel communities, these are led by, I, I hope you don't think like, these are, these are the people that tell people what to do. That's, no, that's what, that's, what, that's what the world does with power and leadership. What do we do? We just meet needs. We're people in need of change, in need of hope, administering that hope to the people around us to meet a need. This is how we love. This is how Jesus loves. This is what this looks like for us. He serves by leading and he leads by serving. He takes the place of a servant. Now, what's going on there? He's symbolizing something. He's serving and leading. He's going to meet a need, but by, by cleaning their, their, the filth off their feet, he's pointing to something. He's pointing to something that he will do for them. Now, don't miss this. Many will miss out on Jesus, not because he is too high and too far, but because he is too low and too close. Look what Peter does in response. Verse 6, Lord, you are going to wash my feet? And, and we, we see elsewhere, Jesus, 
was was pretty well recognized by Peter. Peter knew, like, this is the this is the guy. This is the son of the this is the son of God. This is it. And she's like, you you're gonna wash my feet. And what does Jesus say? What I'm doing, you don't understand, but you will. Why? Because what he was doing was foreshadowing. It was a symbol. I'm going to cleanse you and your feet here so that you will see when I take the lowest possible position, when I take upon the curse and take upon the position of ridicule and shame on the cross, you will remember. It will make sense. You will understand so much that what does he say? If I don't do this, you won't have any part in me. Don't miss Peter missed Jesus and missed what Jesus was doing for him, not because Jesus was too high or too far, but because he was too low and too close. There are two parts of this. The first one we saw in chapter 1, Jesus comes to expose sin and deal with it. Right? John said, look, here's the one. He's the one, the Lamb of God, come to take away the sins of the world. And so people are like, oh, great, here comes the king. Wait, he's coming to do what? We're wait, we're what? We're, we're sinners. And so he exposes and deals with sin. And so that's, we do this as well. So the first place that people typically miss Jesus by looking too high and too far is by not being really honest about the fact that they're sinful. People don't like this and they don't like the thought of Jesus being this because they really think they're better than they are. And by they thinking better than they are, I mean you. Think you are better than you are. It makes you feel better. We think we are better than we are. And many of you think, I'm not really, it's not really sin. That thing I did, it's not really that bad. God's not that perfect and holy. It's okay if I, this is a gray area. Or simply, maybe they just don't even want to admit how bad it is and how deep it goes. I'm not that bad. At least I'm not as bad as them. And the result, did you catch it? Miss Jesus. You ask, Jesus is going to wash me? me? I mean, am I the one who really needs to be washed? I'm not that bad. What is, it, what is that to say to Jesus? I have no part in you. The second thing, the second part of that, is that they probably bought into a, a broken, fallen world's view of power, glory, and greatness. They can't conceive of a God who loves selflessly. He's not too far or too high. Look, what the, look at this. He's too close. He leans in to this table. And so a Christian sees both of those mistakes and embraces them. Both, one, my sin is awful and filthy, and two, would you, Jesus, stoop so low to cleanse me? To know Jesus and to relate to him is to see these things. Did you catch his conclusion? If you miss this, one way or the other, by thinking you don't really need it, or by thinking that my power is like the power of the world, what does he say? You will have no share, no part, no portion, no inheritance with me. You see, for the disciples, unless they were prepared to accept what he would do for them on the cross, he would have no relationship, no fellowship with them. His relationship, his fellowship with them and with us is the cleansing work that he does on the cross. And we embrace it. The next thing you see is really interesting. You saw two different patterns, a picture of love and service and then a picture of betrayal and then another command for love and then a picture of Peter in denial. And so, what we see in this as well, if we're, if we're going to think about what Jesus really cleanses us from, what Jesus really does, then what we see here in this chapter is that sin is a betrayal and a denial. And a sin is defined as a lot of different things across the, the scope of Scripture, but, but here in this chapter, we see that sin is a betrayal and a denial. And that's interesting because he washed the feet of both the betrayer and the denier. And one thing you see that Jesus did is he stooped to wash the feet of Peter. He even stooped to wash the feet of Judas. Now these people didn't know what was going on. After all, as John tells us, like evidently there was nothing that would have indicated Judas was doing anything wrong. 
If you were in a group of people and you had, I don't know, you were a part of a, an organization, an institution, a 501c3 or corporation, and amongst the group of your friends or your, your conglomerates, you said, hey, who's going to take care of all the money? Who's, who's going to do the accounting for us? Who do you pick? Do you pick the thief? No, you pick the most faithful, most reliable, most scrupulous person in the group, don't you? Don't miss that. Judas wasn't this kind of sneaky, snake-like person. He, was, he by, all, by, by all appearances, was the person who was the most dependable looking. And what did Jesus do? He leaned in closely to them. We see at the table the way that Jesus deals with sin, specifically betrayal and denial. Did you notice it? Dips a piece of bread and serves it. You're meant to see and hear the echoes of the Lord's table that we celebrate together, the body and the blood of Christ being offered. To the betrayer? What? Why would Jesus offer himself, his broken body and shed blood, to a betrayer? And friend, the answer, I hope, as you look in the mirror, you will find to be very good news. Because his love is sacrificial love. And how did he deal with sin? Well, one thing he did is he exposed it. Jesus never overlooks sin. Notice, he doesn't, he doesn't overlook it. He even shares with John, look, this is what's going to happen. He says multiple times up to this point in John's gospel, and especially in this chapter, hey, one of you is going to betray me. One of you is going to betray me. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. Now, this is important because I know for a lot of people, this is a big turnoff. A lot of people don't like the thought of sin being something that permeates us and causes us to rebel against Jesus and betray God our Creator. But Jesus never overlooks sin. In fact, He has to address it, otherwise He can't deal with it. Now that's interesting because in the last few decades, you'll see this in, 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 in the world of psychology, is that we've kind of, to help people live with less shame and guilt, we've eradicated any concept of sin. But Blaise Pascal says that it's really interesting, like once you make sin incomprehensible, then we become incomprehensible to ourselves. And so I know for many of you, you're hoping he would just overlook sin. You're hoping that secret you're keeping is something you're just like, no one will know. It won't come to the light. Did you catch it? You're going to miss Jesus. Not because he's too far off. Because he's too close. You're hoping he will overlook what's really hurting, what's really missing. He doesn't. But don't let that scare you. Did you notice what he did? He didn't overlook sin, but he didn't out Judas either. I mean, what would you do if you knew the guy was going to betray you? I'd be like, he's the one. Shame on him. What does Jesus do? How does he deal with sin? He leans more closely to the, to the sinner and he softens them. How does he deal with sin? He exposes it so that he can heal it and deal with it. How does he deal with the betrayer and the denier? Does he out them and make a fool of them? No. He melts them. He melts them. But look at the picture of sin as betrayal and as denial. Uh, literally, betray here just means to give up, like to give away. He's going to give up. He's, he's going to say, my hands are off. I don't want any more. Now, on one hand, he's exerting power over Jesus rather than letting Jesus do that for himself. But, but what he does is he pushes Jesus to his distance. And notice, he, he just kind of pushes him away. Now, the reason why we find is, is pretty powerful. It says that Satan has a grip on him. Satan has convinced him of something. I want to quote to you something from African-American preacher from the Puritan era, Lemuel Haynes, he says, speaking of Satan, he says, if you're prone to think, oh, Satan's just this guy in a, in a, in a red costume with horns on, on his head, he says, oh, Satan, he is an old preacher. He lived above 1,700 years before Abraham, above 2,430 years before Moses, 4,004 years before Christ. You see, by this time, he must have acquired great skill in the art. 
takes grip of this person such that he looks at Jesus and Judas doesn't see a friend, he sees a pawn to get what he really wants. Side note, that's what, that's what typically happens. I want to encourage you, uh, this will scare you, but some of you are here for very corrupt and awful motives. Now, two things. One, I'm glad you're here. God uses corrupt motives, right? Even, like he, he uses, this is the story of these chapters, right? God, God uses crazy, rebellious, treacherous things to achieve his good purposes. That's the first thing. So don't be afraid of it. But here, here's what's going to happen, okay? When you get what you're actually looking for, you're gone. And Christians who know what that feels like will be the one who chase you. But just notice, time will expose what you really want. Time will tell. Do you want Jesus because you want him to be your Lord? Or do you want to use him and his benefits? You want to use his church. You want to use his principles to get what you want. Time will expose you. And when you get what you really want, you're gone. Now the good thing is Jesus isn't thwarted here, is he? Like those corrupt purposes don't stop him. In fact, they serve as, what did he say? He's like, look, I'm telling you why. So that you will know when this happens, you won't be befuddled or confounded. You'll actually know. Oh, that's what it looks like when you don't really exalt and love Jesus. You just use him. You, you, oh, he told us this was going to happen. Man, I can trust him all the more now. But notice here, most people's greatest fear is that someone will publicly out them and I'm here to tell you what you should really be scared of and really wary of is not a public outing, but an intimate encounter with Jesus. And he leans in and he whispers the thing you most want to hide. Betrayal is to cast out, to push that away. To say, I don't want you. I have no need of you. In the first year of our marriage, we lived, as most people in the first of year of their marriage, we lived in an apartment complex which had walls between the apartments which were for cosmetic purposes only. You who laugh, you know exactly what I'm talking about. I mean, that wall's there, but it's really not. And our neighbors, um, who, who we came to love and tried to serve, but uh, they had a teenage son who got into a ton of trouble. And there was a lot of just awful conflict. And the worst part is that his bedroom was right against our wall and we heard every single awful, terrible, bitter thing shared between the two of them. And you know what that's like, some of you. And the thing that, as I got to speak with the mother later, that caused just indelible scars was at the end of each argument, the son would scream out loud, get out of here, get out of my life! And she shared with us that was one of the most painful things. Do, do you hear? Sin is betrayal. To say, I don't need you. Get out. For some of you, that just means that you really want Jesus as like a consultant or a helper so that will help you make your decisions and you don't want him as your Lord. That's what Judas wanted. Ultimately, so that he could reserve the right at any given moment when it got uncomfortable and difficult to say, nope, get out of my life. This is who we are. Side note here, how do you fight that sin? How do you fight that tendency? I mentioned it just a moment ago, church membership. That inner tendency for us to say, I don't need you, I don't want you. We fight. We fight tooth and nail with really inefficient, really painful kinds of things. Intimacy. Closeness. Why? Why would we do that? Is it to make people miserable? No. Because we realize that the work of Jesus isn't great necessarily because it's too far up there and out there. It's because sometimes it's too low and too close. And the real work of Jesus is reclining at the table. And so I know this radical, revolutionary solution to the isolation that's welling up in each of your hearts, church membership. <clears throat> Instead, what do we have? A dinner to enjoy, conversations to share, a class to attend, testimonies to write, one-on-one -on -one conversations to have, and covenant promises to keep. Why would we do such a thing? Because the evidence of the betrayal 
in your own heart is visible in the distance between you and your closest relationships. And so membership for us, discipling, leading, is an attack against what? The thing in Judas that creeps up inside of us. What's the last thing we see here? After this betrayal shows up, he says, all right, now now we're ready to go. Notice, once the betrayer leaves, he says in verse 31, now the glory is going to start. He's going to make his way to the cross. Now it's going to happen. And you'll know that it happens in the way that you love one another. So now we're back to this picture of love again, love to the utmost. But it's a radical kind of love. Now, as I try to illustrate it, we, we typically use that word love wrongly. And, and so, for example, I can say to you something like, I love cows, right? I love them. Love them. Like to, to, I actually, fun fact, I have a date tonight, and I'm going to love a cow. Some part of the cow, seared and grilled, it's going to be great. I don't know some of you don't relate to that, but just imagine I just told a story about like a, a, like a gluten-free salad or something, right? It's equally beautiful and glorious, right? And you would say, I love this thing. But think about what I really mean when I say I love it. What I really mean is I love cows so much that I don't care if they are subjected to what we call animal husbandry. Okay, Google that one. Actually, don't, right? (laughs) Tied up, enslaved, trafficked, thrown on a truck that's freezing cold, driven across the state, shot in the back of head, chopped up, and served to me medium rare on on a nice plate. I love them. I love them. But what do I really mean? I just like the benefit they offer. Don't miss, that's that consumer mentality. That's that, that, that seeing of things as pawns in your game that affected both Peter and Judas and infiltrates our own heart. And if we're not careful, the things we love, what we'll really be saying is, I just like its benefit. But what does the love he say you should have look like? Look, love one another so much so like people will know that you're with me because of the way you love one another. And not the kind of love that like just seeks the benefit of the self, but instead the kind of love that lays down pride, lays down honor, lays down and takes up shame, stoops down to the lowest level to meet the grittiest possible need. Peter says, why can't I follow you in that? And ironically, Jesus is like, you will, actually. He says this in the other Gospels as well. But he says, just so you know, you're going to deny me. You're going to deny me. Look at this most beautiful thing we see in the denial and the betrayal of Peter and of Judas. Even the most treacherous acts can in God's hands and sovereign providence become the occasion for trust in God and his powerful deliverance. Some of you are in this room right now and you feel like disqualified because you know the heart of Judas as a betrayer is in you. And you know the heart of a denier when it gets tough. You know that's in you. And you're scared and you don't realize that those things are the, are the, the colors with which God will paint a beautiful picture of his redemption. Those are just the, the canvases that Jesus uses to make something beautiful. The most treacherous, awful things, the worst thing you can imagine that you did or that was done to you in God's hand has the ability to actually stir up deeper and greater trust and faith in Jesus. Because the love of Jesus bends down towards us to do for us what we could not do for ourselves, to cleanse our filth in the face of betrayal and denial. Look how Philippians 2 and what we call the Christ hymn describes it. He says, look, don't do anything of selfish ambition. Well, why would we do that? Verse 5, Philippians 2, he says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours. How do you get it? In Christ Jesus. We've seen this stooping, serving, leading love. Well, what is Jesus? He's the one that who though, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or comprehended or used like a pawn, but instead what? He emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he did what? He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on an old, rugged cross. Therefore, God has done what? Has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at that name of Jesus, every knee would bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. 
and every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He kneeled in order that we would kneel. Today, bow the knee. Turn from thinking that he's a pawn you can use. See him as Lord. Would you feel him now leaning in closer? I know. I know it's uncomfortable at first. Would he see that he knows your heart? And he doesn't want to out you or embarrass you. He wants to melt you. He wants to win you to himself. Can you see him offering morsels of himself even in our act of betrayal? Would you see his love for you and then let it overflow into love of others? And you'll say, well, the people around me don't deserve that love. Isn't it good that Jesus didn't think that about you? Would you see that he knows you? He knows you're going to deny him. But he doesn't want to destroy you. He wants to win you. Would you see him stooping down to wash our filth? And to face our betrayal and denial. To do for us what we could never do for ourselves. Let's pray. Jesus, we confess we regularly miss you. We regularly get it wrong. And it's usually our own pride that keeps us from this. Would you begin to, through these words of John, this eyewitness account of a radical demonstration of power and greatness, would you soften our hearts and begin to stir in us the curiosity at the very least? So for there's some, uh, maybe there's some in this room that aren't Christians who wouldn't call themselves believers. God, thank you that you've brought them here. Uh, might they just be shocked that, that the great Jesus we worship would, would serve? He would lower himself. Would that, would that mystery cause great, great curiosity and wonder? Maybe for those of us who have seen Jesus and know him, but we constantly miss him because we either feel entitled to more than what we have or we think that we're better than we really are, would you begin to show us that real love has been shown to us through Jesus? By cleaning the filth that we often want to ignore. By making us face the depths of our own hearts in which we are so prone to betray and so prone to deny. We're so quick to sell off what's valuable for something that's expedient and quick. Help us to see the greater love, the greater joy, and the greater glory. Not in the way that Jesus outs us and humiliates us, but the way that he leans in closely across the table and he offers us himself. Might we receive in faith that offer now in Jesus' name. Amen.